our cause is all triumphant and we claim our mother earth and the nightmare of the present fades away we shall live with love and laughter we who now are little worth and we'll not regret the price we have to pay for we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem when each can live their lives secure and free when the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all in the commonwealth of toil that's to be welcome to alan on politics and that uh, music you just heard was not our usual opening theme it was the Commonwealth of Toil, as performed by our guest today, Corey Dolgan. Hello, Professor Dolgan. Hello, Professor Zundel. Corey is not only a musician and the uh, archivist, I guess, of labor movement songs. Uh, he is a professor of sociology at Stonehill College, way across the continent from me in Massachusetts, and I'm here in Oregon. We tried to get as far away from each other as possible, I think, when we were looking for jobs in the uh, academia. Uh, he's also the author of five books, numerous articles. He's an award-winning author actually for his last book, Kill It to Save It, An Autopsy of Capitalism's Triumph Over Democracy. And he has a book coming up, which he's nearly done with. Yeah, we've heard that story before. <laughs> Called American Fascism, which is a very timely topic because we see uh, the goose steps on the march here in America. So Corey, how are you doing today? I'm okay, Alan, I'm okay. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm good. We actually met as graduate students about 30 years ago. I think it's almost exactly 30 years ago, maybe 30 and a half years ago. And we were involved, both involved in our graduate employees union because we were teaching assistants and we were in contract negotiations, which were contentious. And I just saw on your Facebook feed that you are currently in contract negotiations between the faculty and your university, which also sound like they're getting contentious. Uh, so you've been pretty consistent over the years. Well, I do. I like to think that um, I've always had uh, at least my head and heart, if not my feet and my hands in the struggle for labor rights, for working people. I think the hardest thing in our industry, or at least what is now still my industry in academia, is professors don't like to think of themselves as workers and employees. And um, they think that the, uh, the autonomy they get, which is dwindling, but the autonomy that they get and often the governance inclusion, which has been dwindling as well, is a reason for them not to consider themselves um, as employees, but often as management. Um, it's a grave error on the part of faculty. And really faculty unions nowadays are the only things that save us from uh, the rapid speed up of our profession and the degradation of the integrity of our work. People may still have the image of the ivory tower professor, which I don't think was ever entirely true except for maybe a few elite universities. Um, but my witnessing, I, I left academia 10 years ago or so, maybe more now, time flies. Well, um, you've always been a lot older than I am. 
<laughs> and I said, I will be until we both catch up with each other in the grave, I think. So, uh, yeah, I'm about nine years older. And you, and I was rereading some of your last book, and you went into some of your personal story. Uh, you lived through a lot of the changes you're writing about, um, the, the decline of the economic fortunes of the working class during the 1970s and its continual worsening. And your book is really about the stories being told to people and that they incorporate into their own identity about why this is happening, which is very much against their interests. So could you tell us about that book? Because I think your last book really sets up what your next book is about. Yeah, I think it does. And, and you know, um, it's probably not a good idea to start talking about your book with what's wrong with it. But I feel like not only did, did the last book set up this current book I'm working on, but it also bagged it uh, in some ways because it really, um, there were still, um, I think, holes in my last book, that I, questions that I hadn't answered that I felt were necessary to address. As you suggested earlier, we've heard that story before about books almost fi finished. It reminds me of the story about dissertations I was told, which is that there are only two types, done and not done. And I think to some degree, the same is true for books. And so I did need to finish the first book, but I finished it with some uneasiness, knowing that there were certain questions I really hadn't addressed that I needed to. But as far as the first book is concerned, I was really trying to get at how much of our so-called common sense about who we are what our nation is, what its role in the world is, had come to be while I had grown up and become someone who pays a lot of attention to politics and culture and identity. It seemed to me I was growing up at a time of great hope and optimism. It was the kind of end of the boomer generation. Um, you know, we still took seriously JFK's challenge, you know, to ask not what our country can do for us, but what we can do for our country. I think we still took that seriously on a global level. When I came to Michigan as a graduate student, um, we were working on solidarity politics with South Africa, trying to end apartheid. We were working with solidarity politics in Latin America, trying to end imperialism and its impact in Central America. And there was a real hope that we could in fact change the world. Unfortunately, I think by that time, so much of what um, the late 70s, the uh, neoliberalism, we call it now, capitalism for sure, um, and certainly the Reagan generation had really turned the clock back, or, or as I refer to it, a U-turn in uh, not just American politics, but really in global politics. And so, so much of the hope that had existed, the idea of a progressive welfare state that had really started after the depression and World War II to come into effect. The uh, graduated income tax levels had reached the degree where you could imagine bringing in the kind of revenue that was necessary to create the kind of infrastructure uh, that we now talk so much about, but really universal healthcare and childcare, cradle to grave education as so many other um, industrialized countries have for free. Um, the idea of, of housing and low-income housing, housing as a right, not, uh, not a privilege. All of these ideas seemed, seemed doable. And I think really by the time uh, the 1990s were over and we came into the 2000s, I would say um, those expectations had, had declined quite rapidly. And so the book is really looking at how, in fact, our, the emphasis on capitalism and our ideas of economic growth really took precedent 
over what was becoming an increasingly multicultural democracy in the 60s and 70s. And I think that that's really where we are now. We're, we're at a point where um, the triumph of capitalism has been so powerful and so almost absolute that we have, and this is where my new book picks up, you know, we really have people like Putin making the argument that, you know, a liberal democracy has no place with capitalism, capitalism anymore. Capitalism doesn't need that. And in fact, democracies can't handle the changes that are in front of us for uh, the markets and for economic growth. And so he's making an argument that many people are, um, are uh, you know, kind of jumping on that you need a kind of authoritarian figure and you will need these kinds of leaders around the world in order to uh, design the next phase of capitalism. So what exactly was the question you felt you were left with in your last book? Could you articulate it kind of precisely or is it like a sure. host of questions revolving around the same types of things? Well, I felt that in the other book, I tried to make the argument that what allowed capitalism to gain, you know, what we call hege hegemonic uh, position, essentially become dominant, to become the most powerful um, way of thinking. Out out every other way of thinking. Exactly. What are the alternatives? Well, nowadays, we don't think we have any alternatives, really. And if there is anyone preaching an alternative, it generally gets framed as socialism or communism and taken off the table, you know, rhetorically. But, you know, the idea that we had actually had a march towards a kind of very social democratic state, um, very much like the European um, social democracies that, you know, from the 30s uh, up into the 60s and early 70s had seemed a kind of progressive move, that what limited from the outset was actually a long commitment to types of fascism that our country never um, got over. And so the idea that I couldn't really explain that historical precedent more than simply a reference to some of the um, early thinkers like de Tocqueville and, and Crevacore and thinking about the ideas of individualism. And, and then I spend a lot of time with Robert Bella in the book um, and looking at the way in which individualism had evolved and in some ways had been corrupted by a kind of hyper-individualism that uh, he refers to as neo-capitalism. I refer to it as neoliberalism in the book. But that that had gained hegemony, that had gained triumph in our, in our ideological way of thinking. But I think what I've been able to do in the new book is to really explain it in a much better way as a kind of combination of racial tyranny and what historians call proto-fascism. And that in fact, the basic elements of fascism have always been in existence. And so I take a long time in the early parts of the book to look at Native American genocide and the ways in which our country kind of took hold as a, as a settler colonial nation. I spent a lot more time on slavery uh, and the ways in which um, the constitution itself treats Africans and African-Americans enslaved workers. And then I spend a, a lot of time on people like Daniel Shays and looking at the, the regulator movements in the early uh, years of the, uh, of the country and how there were many people opposed to the constitution and many people who saw the constitution as a mechanism for theft. Um, and especially, you know, as the federalists took power in the early years, it was very clear 
the level of authoritarianism that was written in and then practiced in the early years of our so-called democracy. Well, we needed a strong leader like George Washington, right? <laughs> right. Well, well, people like Alexander Hamilton we were looking for. That's right, exactly. I, I mean, it's even in the even in the uh, musical, which is not necessarily, um, you know, not history. I, yeah, but um, but certainly the adoration of Hamilton for Washington uh, is is, uh, is is accurate. You know, but I in the in the new book, I spend a little time on Washington's um, orders to his generals to obliterate the Iroquois, and the idea that you know when 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 Hamilton says we need a strong leader like Washington, you know, I don't know that any of the Iroquois would have agreed with him. And so a lot of you know the question no. of who who we are in in the we the people has uh, has always been a problematic issue, and I think that's part of what we're dealing with today: the kind of white nationalist populist rhetoric that um, that that Trump was able to uh, um, kind of adapt to his marketing plan and and was kind of preached by Steve Bannon and other people um, has really gained uh, quite a following because it hearkens to an identity of American of, of America itself as a white nationalist country, as a country that I think, um, and I, again, in the, in the new book, I, I spent a lot of time on the ri second rise of the Klan uh, and the, the movie Birth of a Nation. And what really occurred at the early part of the 20th century, you know, I'm not the only person who's ever made the argument, but one of the arguments I'm making is that, you know, it was really a, a rebirth of a kind of fascistic um, ideology within the so-called American democracy that put forward the idea that this was a white nation. So let me back up a little bit for the sake of our non-academic listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who would that be? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, of, of the four, I think half of them are not. <laughs> two, of, two of the four aren't. <laughs> yeah. So your first book, you were looking at this, uh, what was happening in the United States over the last really 50 years in my mind, right. but 30 years, especially visible, and how people were swallowing this line that uh, it was important because Americans were individualists. You needed to give them freedom, which meant freedom from government Correct. and letting corporations run wild and ruin their lives, essentially. And they were still buying this argument that you need more freedom for the wealthy and that would enhance the lives of all of us. And people, even when they're doing worse and worse and worse, were buying this. That's so right. that's the American individualist tradition. Everybody's familiar with that. You know, freedom is important and everybody should be able to do their own thing. And if we work hard, we can make it too. Um, it's just that like 99% of us aren't working hard enough. So you're going back now and you're looking more thoroughly at the American tradition. Traditions, we should really say, there's a lot of threads of thinking about who we are as America and identifying ones that are similar to this moment in gotcha. that they look toward um, the whole, I guess the whole concept from the idea of the strong leader to the strong nation down to the strong survive is the idea that you need people that are tough, <laughs> people that are willing to do the nasty stuff in order for our nation to thrive. Is, yeah, is that no, that's... That's that's very accurate. I mean, you know, um, Umberto Eco, uh, Italian philosopher, you know, always says that fascism is a fuzzy ideology. I, I don't um, I don't pretend to have a surgical definition for it. In fact, I spend a, a, a section early on looking at all the definitions, trying to pull out, 
the elements that seem common to all to then use as a kind of descriptor for you know what what fascism or even as I suggest proto-fascism might be proto-fascism essentially just being the elements of fascism that would exist in a country before a kind of complete fascism took over and so you know you you would look at Germany um, in the late 19th and early 20th century to see kind of what elements of culture and identity and even the growing industrial economy might possess that would give you insight into why you know Hitler comes about you know why does Mussolini come about in the 1920s and in Italy you can look at the first few decades of the 20th century and see what's happening in Italy, what elements arise in that in that time, um, and especially after World War One, kind of what what happens then to to manifest itself in, in fascism. In, in our country, you know, I, I refer to the period now in the in the earlier book as, as junk freedom, right, which is this notion that we've come from this idea of freedom as a kind of ability to have democratic rights, uh, freedom as the ability to be unrestrained in what our opportunities and what our talents might bring. And really the rise of a social democratic state was one to realize that vision, right? The idea of making sure that everyone had a quality education, everyone had quality healthcare and, and a place to live and food to eat. Those were all in essence the price of what should have been the ticket to a multicultural democracy um, in our nation. And instead, as, as Baldwin suggests, the price of the ticket has always been whiteness. And what we see happening in this country is that freedom is no longer the opportunity to thrive because this state has created all of these opportunities for its people. It's now the idea that the state does nothing. Right. And that freedom is some freedom from any kind of regulation at all. Uh, I think we're seeing that now with the vaccine. And I think um, we're seeing it in this really perverse uh, way with the idea of critical race theory, that even our youth should be able to not read whatever um, their teachers think that they should be reading. The idea that somehow education has something to offer students and, and their community has now been diminished to the idea of simply pushing them forward into higher and higher levels of education so that they might be prepared for a job at some point. Um, well, we got this, this idea that uh, freedom also entails freedom to believe whatever you want, which I think was a, a, a very similar to Nazi Germany in that people would right. believe whatever they wanted despite the facts in front of their face. Right, the facts. And, and you know, I'm going back to something I had to do years ago in, in, in teaching students, especially first and second year students, in spending not 10 or 15 minutes, but sometimes whole classes on the distinction between argument and opinion. And the idea that we're training people in critical thinking um, so that when they have a point of view, they're able to defend it with evidence. And so now- And logic. And logic, uh, reason, all of these things. Not just cherry no picking the evidence. Not just cherry picking the evidence. And so, you know, when a student says to me, well, you know, your book or these other books that we're reading are, are just your opinions, you know, I have to say, well, you might disagree with me, but you have to look at all of the evidence that I've marshaled to make this argument. And then you need to suggest, okay, 
here's where it's problematic. There's a reason or logic problem there. Here's other evidence that disputes the evidence you're using. You can create arguments. I may not be right, but you can't simply say, well, I think you're wrong because I believe that A, B, or C is true. And, and you're right. This notion that not only can people believe what they want, but in fact, they can believe it to the point of, of arguing it's true without an argument. It's true because I believe it. It's actually getting harder and harder to teach subjects like sociology, history, political science. For all I know, my folks, my friends across the uh, across the quad may be having just as much trouble in biology these days. It's a difficult situation, but in in the previous book, I think I spell out probably the biggest reason for this, which is not so much the rise of fascism, but it's the rise of neoliberalism, and the idea that higher education actually doesn't value critical thinking as much as I think it used to. Um, now it values money. Job skills, credentials. That's right. That's right. Once again, we're doing what Mario Savio suggested we were doing in the 60s. We're producing students who, who are the raw material capital. Oh, let's, let's identify Mario for people. <laughs> He's the leader Mario of the, uh, yeah. the uh, moving force in getting the free speech movement in Berkeley started, which led to a lot of campus unrest and eventually protests against the Vietnam War and all the rest. And also the rise of Reagan. I just finished a book from like uh, several years ago where Reagan became governor with the help of the FBI and then became president, largely on the basis of his willingness. Uh, this is a parallel to what you're talking about on his willingness to crack down on the people who were messing up what America should be. No, that's right. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, Trump et al, they've taken pages directly from the Reagan playbook um, that goes back to the 60s and was part of the COINTELPRO and, and, and FBI program, which was um, not only to put down the, the uh, left movement, but really to to go to any length to justify uh, these movements, the brutality, really, police brutality, um, police murders. And, th and that usually uh, required serious propaganda, serious lies. And so anyone uh, reading the Times today, um, uh, listening to NPR, um, may have heard the story uh, from a great reporter, Michelle Goldberg, about what's being bandied about in Virginia these days about this hysteria, this moral panic over sexuality in particular um, issues around transgender identity and in very particular about uh, bathroom policy that takes into consideration transgender rights. And the incident that's being lied about is that a transgender male um, went into a women's bathroom and assaulted a, a young student. And it's just not true. It's just a lie. Uh, there was an assault, um, but it was not by a transgender person. It's not, it, it wasn't someone who kind of laid in wait, disguising themselves as a woman in, in the women's bathroom, waiting for a young girl to come in to pounce. And so most of the story is just an outright lie, but it's being propagated over and over again to um, rally support for the Republican candidate in Virginia, who has come out against these transgender rights, et cetera. So the idea that you know, Reagan would lie about the power of the Panthers and what they were responsible for, the Black Panthers, or would lie about uh, the free speech movement and the use of drugs and, uh, and, and, and what the goals were, this, these goals of, of, uh, of polluting and contaminating young people um, with drugs and free love and all the other 
you know, uh, uh, so-called uh, characteristics um, ha have been tried and true, unfortunately. This is, this is where we are right now. And, um, and it's really difficult with the ways in which mass media has intensified and social media in particular to, uh, to weed these things out. I worry about talking about fascism with people because the word has been used so often just as an epithet without much content like right. so-and-so is a fascist so-and-so what it what it means to people in general i guess is that this is a bad guy i don't like him right yeah you know, so even though it's hard to define fascism because it doesn't have a coherent philosophy behind it you have to kind of make up their philosophy based on evidence of how they act and what they say mm -hmm. uh, but uh, to, to give it a little more content, can we describe the hallmarks of it? I guess sure. it should be familiar, but it, I think it helps to see it if you say these are the principal things. So one yeah. we've mentioned is the strong man. Yeah, and, and, I, and I actually think in some ways it's almost the least important um, in the sense that it's very simple to see Trump as a kind of authoritarian strongman figure. Um, Putin, uh, Orban, you know, in Hungary, uh, you know, Modi in, in, in India. I, I think you can, you can find these folks, but for the most part, they're bolstered by quite a network. Certainly, uh, we won't need Trump to have fascism in the US. Tr Trump has been a very useful conduit. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier, maybe a Trojan horse of sorts for fascism. Um, but, you know, there are many, many others prepared to step into his wake and, and promote the uh, you know, everyone from the Proud Boys to a kind of Facebook fascism of sorts, you know, which really holds the marketplace uh, above any other sense of values. But I think that aside from that, you, you find there is a corporatism involved. Mussolini actually said fascism is corporatism. There is a kind of the, the marketplace, particularly capitalism and profits are primary. Um, economic growth is primary. Whatever is necessary to... Uh, ensure the ability for international corporations to uh, maintain control over the market is what uh, these organizations are looking for, what fascism is about. There's also a populism, generally a kind of uh, racial uh, and uh, or religious kind of uh, identity that sees uh, almost an interesting you know, duality, uh, conflict uh, of two things, which is on the one hand, it's populism, right? So it, it, it tries to appeal to the masses, but it's a populism based on a kind of purity of identity. And so in our country, it's a white uh, nationalism. And in, uh, in, in Germany, uh, you know, it was about being German. You know, in Italy, it was, a, it was, it was about the, the kind of uh, legacy of uh, what, what is the Italian macho uh, identity? Um, and so along with, uh, with the idea of this kind of populism and purity of identity comes racial tyranny, which, uh, which is a tried and true element of fascism, um, as well as violence. And I think, you know, the, to me, probably the most frightening um, element of fascism um, on the rise today is the willingness and legitimacy of violence as a response to uh, political disagreement. What we're seeing on the level, not just of you know, Trump bringing in the troops to clear Lafayette Square, 
you know, we're also seeing, um, you know, groups of people at school board meetings um, and town meetings, you know, threatening violence and in some cases even carrying it out, plans to, uh, to kidnap a, a governor or a secretary of state. I, I don't recall liking the governor of Michigan when, when we were students there. Um, I don't think I ever thought about the idea of kidnapping and hanging them. You know, this, this level of violence that is so much a part uh, historically of fascism is really alive and well today. And, you know, the, uh, the brown shirts and the black shirts uh, are back. Um, they tend to be wearing khaki these days. Well, it's uh, already been almost a half an hour that we've been at this. Um, <laughs> I want, again, identify. And we haven't you. solved it yet. <laughs> no, if if you got time, we could do a second second Absolutely. segment. So, uh, Professor Corey Dolgan, the author of American Fascism, which is soon to appear in your in your uh, uh, local bookstore, I guess, um, but sometime in the near future. I look forward to reading it, definitely. And I'm going to end this segment for this week with another song that Corey performed on his CD many, many years back that you recorded this. You still going around giving those singing lectures? I, um, COVID has, uh, has, has, has put a temporary hiatus on it, but um, I just got my first, uh, my first gig scheduled for next spring. And, oh, great. and I hope back on the, back on the, the march. So we're going to close with the number you got to go down and then we'll be back again um, for most people next week and for us in a, in a minute. <laughs> You've got to go down and join the union. You've got to join it by yourself. Oh, nobody else can join it for you. You've got to go down and join the union by yourself. 